It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today we're going to be discussing a release by the Michael Lennart Orchestra. It's called The Norman Suites, and it's a new masterwork on Sunnyside Records. And it even has guest appearances from people like Elvis Costello, Bill Frizzell, Joshua Redman, the rapper Jay Swiss, Larry Goldings, Nels Klein, Donnie McCaslin, and others. This is quite an interesting album. It's the third by the Michael Lennart Orchestra, and it features a pair of suites, the first of which is an exploration and the stages of grieving, and the second suite is a reflection on love and loss. And it all is centered around and inspired by the life and the death of Michael Leonard's 15-year-old dog, a female mini dachshund named Norman. Yeah. Michael, thank you for joining us here on All That's Jazz. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Before we jump into the album itself, just a couple of things. First of all, for those listeners who don't know, Michael is actually... uh, a member of almost, uh, I would say, a musical family dynasty. Your father, Jay Lennart, is uh, an incredible bassist and certainly well-known and uh, renowned throughout the world. You also have a sister, uh, Carolyn, who's a vocalist and Mm well-established and uh, quite a stellar uh, singer at that. Uh, I'll say, yeah. How many others in the family uh, have that musical uh, bent my mother has it. Uh, most people don't know that she was she, she was a, a jazz singer early in her twenties, playing with him. She she met my dad sort of on the scene, and she used to do these sessions with Larry Rosen of GRP on drums. She used to hang with Al Haig. I mean, she was on the scene, but she had a very sort of sensitive soul and was tormented by getting on stage and insecurity and and whether she wanted to do it. And she met my dad and fell in love with him, and she chose to have kids and, and kind of take that path. And she would sing in the kitchen. She's, she's also a lovely little pianist. She kind of plays very simple piano, but she can play. And she didn't make her first album until she was 60, and I produced it, but that's a whole other story. But she's an incredible singer. And when she sings a certain material, it is so authentic that she's kind of my favorite interpreter of, of this sort of era of the American songbook where she lived it. So she's not recreating it. She's not kind of copying stuff. It's just her singing with the jazz vernacular. So it's fascinating. Most people don't know that she's a singer. So and there's more. I mean, there's also my uncle, Bill Lenhart, who was one of the preeminent seven-string guitarists in the style like Bucky Pizzarelli. So it's, there are a lot of us out there. Well, the apple, as they say, and the tree kind of thing uh, for yourself uh, is truly amazing. And what you have done uh, through your career is is quite outstanding, especially as it, I think, relates to this release called The Norman Suites. Why don't you describe to our listeners what this is based on and how you arrived at putting this all together. It's a really, I think a beautiful piece of work, but it's complex, too, in many ways. Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. And there was a part of me that 
at times hesitated whether I wanted to release it at all. Um, the nascence of it is that my wife and I, and it gives me chills talking about it, um, my wife Jamie and I, before we had a, um, actually before we got married and before we had a kid, she was my best friend already. And we said, let's, let's do a dry run on how we are as nurturing human beings, potentially parents. Let's get a dog. I said, oh, man, I always wanted a dog. I loved dogs growing up. But I couldn't have them because my sister and my father were incredibly allergic. So I would search out dogs in the neighborhood that I could kind of dog sit and walk. And, and I, um, the way I later grew towards music, I was with dogs and their breeds. I was fascinated by them. I just loved all the different styles. And... Eventually, when my wife said, let's get a dog, she was hell-bent on a dachshund. I said, done. I love dachshunds. She said, I love dachshunds because they are small dogs with the soul uh, of a big dog. They think they're big dogs. So they have this confidence and the swagger, but they're adorable and cute, and, and you can go anywhere with them. So we got a mini dachshund. I had to get up at more in the morning, you know, to take the dog out when it was going to poop on the floor or something. And then I got up at 6.30 regularly to take walks. She would do afternoon walks. And, and little by little, you know, I was exhausted. I went, this is, this is for me. I'm surprised because I've spent a lot of my life as a very selfish person, um, admittedly so. So basically, we decided to name the girl uh, Norman because we're a little weird that way. So we gave the girl dog a boy's name, spelled it with a Y. And to make a long story short, Norman was with me at every recording session that I did as a producer. She would come to the studio. She would sit in the bass drum. She was super chill. People would say, is, is Norman here? I'd say, yeah, she's right down there. I'd say, but it, we're blasting like low kick drums. I said, she's used to it. And this, she was so comfortable. And little by little, I could tell a lot about the artists I was producing or working with by how they interacted with the dog. For example, we'd be working an eight-hour session and four hours in, I'd say, that sounds great. Let's take a break so I can walk Norman. And it's said, well, 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 well can't, can't you do it later? It's actually, I mean, well, I can wait a half hour, but the dog has to walk. And I could tell how self-involved an artist was by their willingness to go for a walk with the dog. And to add one step further, when we went on the walk, did they pay attention to the dog or were they just tripping over the dog in a hurry to get back? And this was not a conscious choice at first, but I realized, oh my God, this little being who is, has no recollection of the past or the future, but is constantly just in the moment is a great barometer of the person I'm working with and also me. Mm -hmm. So we developed this ridiculous uh, bond. She was with me for the Donald Fagan album that I produced with, with Donald, Sunken Condos, and she was there, and Donald's like, Jude Dog. He, you know, he, he doesn't grow close to a lot of beings, and he, he loved her, you know. And she led a beautiful life. Um, she, there was a, a time when she had a cancer scare, and basically it, it turned out that she did have cancer. We operated and figured it out, and... You know, this is where the fork in the road splits because I didn't... Dogs are dogs. They're not human. And our relationship with them is fascinating. It is different, though. There is a delineation between 
a human-human relationship and a human-dog relationship. However, the trust and the bond is undeniable. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I talked about to what extent are we going to go to save this dog? We don't want to spend thousands of dollars. We're not that kind of people. But what are we going to do and what is the value in trying to help her out? So we found the middle ground. So to fast forward, she did beautifully. And eventually the cancer came back. And we were faced with the inevitability that um, there was nothing we could do. And this is the first time that I had ever had a pet that I was saying goodbye to. And part of me was like, oh, come on, people lose pets all the time, toughen up. And the other part of me thought, you know what, I'm going to allow myself to just feel whatever I feel here because this is really hard. And we took care of her. Um, The end was tough. And she would come to the studio with me, and maybe she wasn't eating, and she was never in pain. But it was uh, quite a little journey saying goodbye to this being that I had such a bond with. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, when she finally did die, uh, I didn't really know what else to do. I was like, it, it was a feeling I had never felt. It was different. I'd lost grandparents. I had lost friends um, in life. But this was very different. So I thought the way I'm going to express this is musically. And and there were times as I was writing it, I was wary of being uh, an almost, you know, a, a white man in his 40s who's weeping over a, a dog dying and the privilege that, that that can wreck, you know, that that can bring about. And I thought this is not about losing a dog as much as learning to say goodbye to something or someone that you love and what mm-hmm. it brings about. And once I tapped into that, the, the, the water just flowed, and it was all these pieces started coming. And I looked into the, um, the five stages of grieving. I thought, I didn't want to make a very morose album. At the same time, this is an affirmation of life. And most of this was written before COVID. So then mm. COVID struck, and I went, oh, my God, this is going to take on a whole different tone. So that's basically what it is. It's, it's about learning to love and lose you know, and say goodbye to the, to the people and the things we love. So when you were developing uh, this release and putting compositions together, you had mentioned uh, a few moments ago how you uh, had the inspiration or influence from the five stages of grief. And there's mm-hmm. two different suites on the album, uh, one dealing uh, with the five stages and then the, the second one, I, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, coming full circle and yeah. uh, arriving at that place in life where you can live with it. Mm-hmm. So the first suite, you know, I had all these different disparate pieces and melodies that were coming together and there were themes, almost like operatic motifs that kept returning. There's one theme... Which is actually from the first song I wrote, inspired by the dog, which was called Susie Lattimore. It almost sounds like a Beatles, like a solo Paul McCartney song. And I'll send it to you later, but it's um, with me singing from 2004, I think. And it was Susie Lattimore. And my wife knows it, and I thought, well, that little motif, I'm going to bring that back. So that appears throughout, but I kept on sculpting and figuring. Okay, how do these tie together? So I know what the seeds are, but let me move the pieces around. And what, what is the suite going to look like? And there were some pieces that I actually wrote. It was La Preghiera and, and the Dunes of Cahoon Hollow. 
those were the ones that I wrote when she, in, in like the last week of the dog's life, when she just wouldn't eat. And uh, she just wasn't in a great place. And the, the vet said, just keep her happy. And I said, what if I take her to the studio? And said, it seems like she loves music. So I put her on top of the piano and play for her. And she'd pop her head up. And I, you know, when she needed, I'd take her for a walk. She'd try and do her thing. But I started writing these pieces. And I realized, okay, these are going to be themes for her. And at times I was really beating myself up because I thought this has to be the most incredible expression of love ever. And I thought, well, that's not really going to help me write anything. That's just going to handcuff me. So I'd write stuff down. And once I freed myself up to not beat myself up, um, the pieces started coming. And I got this sense of the five-part suite, the first one. And it was just the arc of it night. And I saw, I think it's the Kubler-Ross method um, from 1969, which was one of the studies about how, a theory about how we grieve and the different steps. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting because that gives me uh, more clay to work with when you have denial and anger. And it's not, you know, there's a whole, and acceptance. I thought, oh, this is all starting to come together. So once I found that model, it gave me the framework within which to, to, to really write. So it's not just um, formless writing. And I started understanding, hey, what am I going to do with Im improvisational solos? Because it's jazz, it exists in the jazz world, but this is, mm -hmm. not, this is not a vehicle for people soloing. So in, in the world of like Ellington Suites, what role does the soloist play? Are there always solos? Are there short solos? To what extent am I allowing the improviser to dictate where this goes? Because it's a very special theme here. So did it start in, in a successive manner uh, where you started with denial and then moved on to anger and then to acceptance as you composed and developed this particular release? It had to because they needed to tie together. So I had the themes almost like in, um, was it Homeland? Uh, where she has all the different, you know, cards and the strings. It's like, you have to, I have all the pieces, but I try and push myself to really put together something cohesive. So I thought, okay, I, this is going to be tricky getting from this kind of Thad Jones brass, uh, there's an eight-bar brass interlude in Denial, which is very much in the style of, like, Thad Jones's Us. almost schizophrenic, going through the different emotions of what we feel, um, and thought, how the hell am I going to get from that into anger, and then into catharsis? So I had to have the structure, like editing a movie, um, otherwise it was just going to be a hot mess. So you mentioned where there might be solos and so on, and obviously this is a recording that's based uh, in the talent uh, and the orchestration of the Michael Leonard Orchestra. And from there, you developed uh, the opportunity to bring in guest 
uh, artists. Uh, like, for example, in the first suite, you have Bill Frizzell, which uh, I'm sure was very important to you when you got past the denial and the anger part. And you're talking about bringing in uh, that contemplative soloing from Bill Frizzell through the guitar. I mean, Frizzell is a master at that. So I would trust him. I was fortunate enough to have monstrous souls on this who are so supportive and communicative that they're not going to just, you know, overtake a song. Frizzell especially, if you've ever spoken to him, he has this uh, naivete, brilliant, but he has a... um, almost childlike outlook on, on creativity and, and it's very pure and he understands all these themes. So I, I gave him a, a, a gist, the idea of what this is about. I said, just let her rip. easy. I mean, there was a part of me that was scared to open up catharsis to uh, even Frizzell, but again, it was about trust, and he understood it, and he's such a lyrical and economical player that I just kind of fell back and said, go for it. Do what you want. And when I heard it, I went, wow, what a smart, what, what a smart choice. In, in the, uh, the piece called Nostalgia, it it has elements of the uh, the, the the song uh, that comes later, which is the Dunes of Cahoon Hollow. Mm-hmm. Is that was that was the the melody or or the the basis uh, for that nostalgia? Yes, uh, the Dunes of Cahoon Hollow came first, mm. and that was the piece that I started writing when uh, Norman was on top of the piano, and it was just this little. Um, eight-bar theme that almost reminded me of uh, Pat Metheny and Kurt Rosenwinkel, oddly enough, two guitarists. But uh, I just happened upon them and went, wow, okay, that's something. But it didn't fit into the first suite. I knew that. It was its own thing. But I love the idea of borrowing this do-do-dee-da-do-do-dee-da-da theme. So I brought that in there and uh, there's, then it goes into the body of the song, and this is the first time that I've actually had my horn section mates uh, from Steely Dan on my orchestra album. Mm-hmm. And I had, it starts off with Jim Pugh and Walt Weisskopf, Jim Pugh on trombone, Walt on tenor. And they, we obviously spent a lot of time together on tour. And I told them about this album, and they, you know, Norman would be at sound checks at the Deacon Theater. Um, Upper West Side, and she, and they'd say, "I thought the dog was here," and I would say, "Look down," and she'd be at my feet, wow. like a wow. little blanket over her ears. And they said, "My God, this dog is crazy." I said, "Well, 
look, she's done it since she's nine weeks old, so this is she's very comfortable, and she knows that you know she's taking care of him. She loves the sound of music, so I wanted those two guys because they each have um, their own experiences with love and loss. Uh, Jim uh, was adopted, and often wondered about who was you know birth his nat- natural parents were. And Walt Weisskopf lost his mother uh, at a young age. So it was important to me to bring people in who had a direct relationship to this idea of, of love and loss, you know, and of losing something. Mm-hmm. And, and this, is in, this is part of being human. You know, I heard this great expression that the cause of dying is being born. And I went, oh, that's great. I mean, we die because we were born. So this is part of what we all deal with, but we deal with it in very different ways. In some cultures, when a dog is sick, you just walk it to the cliff and kick it off. Mm. That's it. The dog is done. So there are all different ways of, of dealing with this, you know. But these two people in particular, for nostalgia, I knew that it played a special part. Going back to the, the first suite, it ends with the acceptance and mm-hmm. how critical was that to you in the process, in the catharsis? Uh, and then also you introduced a family member into that piece as well. Tell us about that. Uh, my mother sings the opening. And I didn't share with her the, the depth of, what it, uh, of it being the closing piece. I didn't want to freak her out. But she came into my studio and I said, you you're cool, you're going to sing this uh, opening part? She said, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's good enough. I said, just try it, and we'll see what happens. And I knew she could nail it. So I had the string intro, and she said, what are the lyrics? I said, oh, no, 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 there are no lyrics. It's just this little vocalese thing. beautiful self-doubt came in. She said, well, couldn't you get someone else to do it better? I said, there's no one's going to do it like you, and that's what I want. Now, did I consciously realize that there's a beauty to having my mother, who is 80 and will not be around forever on this piece? I mean, that's awfully morbid. I think it was more like I wanted her sound on it. As I was mixing the album, I went, wow, the unconscious does work in crazy ways that uh, I could have had my sister, my wife, uh, 50 other people, but it was important to me to have an older woman's voice on this, a very soft-sung voice, and in particular, my mother. I only have one mother. <laughs> and and she, a couple of days later, she said, was, was it good? And I said, not only was it good, it was great. And it's, it's just incredible to me. I love, no one could have done what she did. This just kind of 
pure, fragile tone, you know. So once you arrived at acceptance and you completed this, did the rest of it just flow out of you very quickly or easily uh, compared to maybe the first part, which I would imagine would have been harder? I think, uh, honestly, once I was finish, finishing this album, we were in the midst of COVID. So now there was a whole new ball of wax to consider. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as sacred as a moment of acceptance and the book closes and now I'm at peace. It was writing it, understanding that this suite has a form and I finished the suite and there was the immediacy of feeling whole and a sense of completion that I finished the suite. As I was working on the other parts of it, the emotion kind of came back and it was still very raw and... So all the various things that we all dealt with in 2020 and frankly 2021, but specifically as this album was really being finished uh, from day to day, from hour to hour, these things kind of pop up like whack-a-mole. So I think the real answer is that I'm able to tap into this feeling of acceptance and know, okay, well, hold on, hold on. It's been a while and I have a lot of closure. I think about her all the time. Um, and I see dogs on the street. And the, the amazing thing is that for a while I thought, what am I going to do without this dog to, to force me to take a break at the studio? This dog that selfishly allowed me to slow down, that made me think less about myself. Dog's gone. We've got to give away, got to throw out all the leashes that, you know, well, we don't need anymore and the shirts that are ripped. And eventually I realized, oh, it's so much bigger than just a dog. It made me a better husband, a better friend, a better father. And whether if I choose to go back to the pre-dog way of life, that's on me. But I don't need a dog to just slow down and stop and take a walk and think about other stuff than in my own you know, closed-off universe. And once I really realized that, I was ready to consider getting another dog. It gave me perspective on, on this beautiful experience I had and that's not the center of everything it is one of the great experiences it's forever changed me and I can move on so when you were putting this together how, how did you come about just adding to the production some of the guest stars that you have on there tell us about the connection with Elvis Costello did he write a few pieces with you or collaborate on uh, composition yes yeah, so um, Elvis I've known since 2007 and time would go by that we didn't see each other, and then we were neighbors on the street, and we'd, uh, he would open up for Steely Dan with, the, uh, with his group, and then there was just kind of, you know, he's a very affable guy, and we just connected. So I forget how it was, but it was during the COVID, I had another piece, and I sent it to him, and I said, hey, oh, and Frizzell was on it. And I said, I know you and Frizzell worked together uh 20 years ago, I didn't realize that it was 25 years exactly. I said, uh, you want to do something over this? And he wrote back that night. He was on the West Coast. It was a, My phone went ding, like around 1 a.m. And, and he sent me, he said, I love it. Here's something I recorded. And I went, whoa. And huh. that was radio was everything, which was unrelated to the, to the suite.
I'm sitting here wondering if this matchbox will hold my dreams. The redhead in my arms go up in flames. The dissolved mighty regimes with her screams. Huh, so it seems. She dragged my face from the eye to my lip on the rough side of the striking strip. To the port side of a sinking ship, staring at a compact mirror, the siren calling from another era. And after that, we wrote another one that came on his album, which was Newspaper Pain. And then, uh, during 2020, there was um, Shut Him Down, this piece that was co-written uh, with uh, Elvis. And that came out as a, as a Michael Earnhardt orchestra track. And it felt like it was a n- nice way to present the suites with these little bookends to cleanse the palate. It was, it's also a picture of what we were going through during 2019 and 2020. And I thought, you know what, I, I went back and forth. Does it fit? Um, should it just be the suites? And in the end, I figured, you know what, let me present them all because this is the snapshot of what was going on in the orchestra's life. And we were all just kind of obliterated by the fact that not only did um, Jazz Standard close, where the orchestra had our residency, but of course, no one had any gigs, and we didn't know what the future was going to be. So Shut Him Down was this great uh, moment where I was remotely, uh, as we were all quarantined, I did with a lot of other big bands and orchestras I've done. I sent people tracks. We figured out a way to do it. And I said to the orchestra, you know, Elvis Costell's involved and who wants in? And they all were thrilled to do it. Hmm. And it was such a special kind of team family spirit um, that I decided to include it on there. You know, Frizzell was ready to record and it was a nice salvation for him. I said, thank you so much for doing this. He said, are you kidding me? This is wonderful. It made me escape the madness of 2020. Mm-hmm. And, and the uh, same thing happened. Go ahead. The same thing happened with Joshua Redman, where um, I had the video version of "Shut Him Down," which had Chris Potter on bass clarinet, which we included. And then I said to Josh, who I've known, I said, "Hey, do you want to do you want to record on this?" And I sent it to him. He said, "Yeah, I'm in." So he recorded remotely, and we were going to do something where I produced. Um, via Zoom because he wanted feedback and in the end I said you know I trust you either way you can record some takes and send it to me or I'm happy to sit there and produce if it helps you not be in your head he sent me some tracks they were incredible and then he told me later he said you know actually this is the first recording ever on my dad's repaired horn I said oh my god I don't think he knew the theme of the album but he said I, this is you know Dewey's horn from 2007 or something 2008 and it was in the closet, and I finally had it repaired, and it's the first time I'm playing it, so it's kind of special. And I'm like, wow. What a, what a great story that is. And, and it, it sounds beautifully. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a great addition to that particular piece of Shut Him Down. And then also yeah. great, I, I love the idea that you added Jay Swiss into the mix. Mm-hmm. Well, he and I have a duo. So that's another, you know, this, this represents a whole bunch of stuff here on the album that Jay Swiss and I it's like a little glimmer of our it's straight up hip hop shut him down shut him down do you run him through a 
thousand times you didn't A hundred times you didn't Shut them down on the ground It's astounding and the sound that surrounds you Asleep, now you found and aroused So get up, doubt into the minds You gotta purge it Praise rolling into the week like Sunday service Walk in it, world might be dark But I'm in the right spirits That voice of doubt Don't gotta listen although you hear it one time That don't make it true A thousand times to make your mind up and make it through Swiss Jay Swiss has guested with my orchestra for two years, and he's one of the few rappers I know that can float on top of an orchestra, a big band, and fit in but not lose himself. So we developed this friendship, and then we said, we have to write some, some stuff together. And I was a little concerned that how am I going to balance? It's just going to be manic, going from kind of Afrobeat to Elvis to hip-hop. And there was a day when I went, okay, I think I know how to do this. And everything kind of switches like a kaleidoscope, and it even switches drummers. And once I had that, I went, okay, this can be done. And he, he's, he's monstrous. He just always adds something special to it. And yep. then the album ends with uh, a quartet, a new quartet of mine. So it's been a very creative time. That's the two pieces called Kenny Dorham and Wayne Shorter. Why bring in things like Kenny Dorham or Wayne Shorter or shut them down in a recording that is primarily a tribute to Norman? The answer is twofold. One is uh, business as well. The marketability is allowing something that creates a, a different sound. And I struggle with this at times. Do we just include uh, these two suites? Or do we give something that was created during the same time that allows a different perspective into the orchestra. And when I listened to it back, I said, does this alter the sound, the integrity of it? And, and especially when Josh Redman played that solo on his dad's horn, I went, well, this thematically absolutely fits in. Even if the lyric doesn't, does this fit in? Absolutely. The last two tracks, that's, that's mostly from a, a marketing promotional standpoint, which is that it's going to be hard for the orchestra to tour I sat down and, and was talking to a, a booking agent saying it's possible to do shows on the East Coast, New York, maybe something West Coast, but it's going to be tricky to promote this album live around the world. What would be easier is to do live shows with the, with the quartet or the quartet because that's four people. It's much more controlled. The quartet album is not ready, but the two tracks were. And a friend said, why don't you just put them as bonus tracks so that the people that hear this can say, in the meantime that I want to hear the orchestra and can't live, I could come hear this quartet and you'll get a glimpse of it. And I thought, you know what? I like that idea. How could listeners learn more about you and the release? You can go to michaellenhart.org, L-E-O-N-H-A-R-T. Or you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook. There's a lot there that we post about the album and different shows and little goodies. Well, I, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing the story and the music with us. Uh, and I, I would hope that our listeners will, will find the same thing in, in listening to this album. It, it, it's something that shouldn't be missed. It, it should be thank heard. You. Thanks for taking the time. The time was well spent. And Michael, thank you for being our guest here on All That's Jazz. Thank you for having me. Really. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with trumpeter, composer, arranger, producer, and band leader Michael Lenhart. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.